0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. It does sound all rather interesting, doesn't it? This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As always, we like a special guest, and I've just been working through these archives, which i collected over the years. This is with a member of Stump. Yes. Stump, one of the most important bands of the 80s. This is um, an interview I did Interview I did with Kev Hopper. I know, dramatic pause. What more can I say? Anyway, this is me, this is Kev, talking about life in Stump. Take it away, Kev. This is, oh, by the way, I just asked him a little bit about um, the sound of the band. And this is it.
1: Yeah, uh, well, um, I, I always, I'm always surprised when people say that.
0: Right. Okay. Well, you know, it was quite a un- unique sound and um quite, you know, like um, very memorable. Yeah. Obviously, you know, I'm of that age, which you know used to listen to John Pierre and record the show and then buy the n m e on a <clears throat> wednesday morning and and get very excited yeah. about all these bands, so um yeah it was good, but obviously you know people like Stunt bog big flame were were all part of that kind of moment that we all sort of embraced during the mid eighties you know for a few more years so is it possible to just give us an idea of you know like how the band formed
1: yeah um well i i I'd, I'd met Chris. In 82, in Whitstable, and um, went over in a summer holiday, and he was at art college at Canterbury at that time, and I was at art college in Coventry. And we sort of jammed a little bit, but I liked what, what he did, and we kind of made a loose arrangement to meet in London because we were planning to move to London after college. Uh, so that did happen, and then uh, we started putting a few bits of music together and then we advertised for a drummer in the Melody Maker and Rob turned up and then there was a long period really where we didn't have a singer and we were just sort of um, people were auditioning and then there was a fellow called Nick Hobbs who sang with us for a bit Um, and then um, we kind of decided that wasn't going to work out and then um, eventually Rob called up Mick Mm. who he knew was resident in London.
0: Uh, And then what happened then?
1: Well, he came down and he he seemed to, he needed a lot of kind of persuading uh, to to come down in the first place. Um, And he liked it and he wrote, I think he wrote Orgasm Way almost immediately.
0: So where did he Uh, come, where did Mick come from? uh, He was from
1: Cork. The same. He was from um, Cork City, the same as Rob. Mm. But he, like a lot of Irish people at the time, he'd moved over looking for work and in London. Uh, there was nothing in Cork at that time in the mid-80s. So the, the, um, London was full of uh, Irish guys. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting
0: because mm. I did an interview with two of the members of Micro Disney just before Christmas. So obviously there was a bit of a connection with them as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Rob played drums with Sean and Cahill for a little bit, I think. And I think because they were from the same town, they used to sort of rub shoulders and, you know, there were lots of little kind of people joining for five minutes and leaving and that sort of thing, you know. I don't know the full details of it all, but, yeah, they were all, well, they were all sort of, there's something to connect all of those bands, you know.
0: Yeah, I suppose at the time you, you, you can't appreciate it until afterwards, and then you look back. But but the interesting thing is because um, obviously you you had quite a you know unique sound, and any band with a unique sound. I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead just before mm. Christmas, which was a bit weird, and. Um, Yes, and obviously, you know, they, they created something that took a while for it to sort of work. I think initially, first year or two, you know, it wasn't going anywhere and um, they were sort of thinking, yeah, this is just this is a non-starter and then they suddenly got their sound together and things started to come together and, and obviously it's, so did the songwriting. So was the process with Stump, did that also take a while because it was quite, I suppose at the time, quite an unusual vibe you had.
1: Well, instrumentally, it was kind of set from the beginning uh, by our own limitations. So I had a way of playing, and I wasn't a very flexible musician. I didn't, or, or you know, I didn't. I couldn't sort of suddenly join a country and western band and start playing country and western bass. I, I just had one style. And uh, and Chris, Chris was a bit more flexible. He, he was, um, he was basically an R and B player, but he had this other side to his playing, which I used to sort of coax out of him which was this odd thing with you know with this odd style with a tremolo arm and these funny little sort of high-pitched things that he used to do Uh, and that those the combination of the bass the fretless bass with lots of vibrato and the the guitar with lots of tremolo was was the basic essence of the sound when Rob joined he you know he was sort of he knew a lot about B-Fart and how to look at the kit as a total instrument so that it wasn't just something for doing a backbeat. He would would compose parts from the, the, you know, with the tom-toms and the whole thing as a a whole. So the the, the three instruments combined meant that we had that sound right from the start.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: And then when Mick Mick joined, Mick was, you see, a band like Stunt could have just gone down the kind of arty route. Uh, but Mick was—we didn't want that. We wanted—we wanted to sort of do songs. We wanted to have choruses that you could sing along with and all that. Uh, so uh, when Mick joined, he—he he understood that, and he, you know, he looked for catchy choruses, even if they were, you know, things like Buffalo, you know, singing Big Bottom Swing and. <laughs> He liked that kind of idea of goofiness and, and and lightness, so that that was that kind of made the thing complete. It meant that it wasn't just an arti- artistic experiment yes. uh, with with odd sounds and odd way of playing together. It was it became more like pop.
0: Yeah, it was quite interesting because obviously um, it was it was one of those things. When I did an interview with a member of Big Flame, I think their sound was driven mostly by their musical. Um, yeah limitation lim- limitations. so it was yeah. a bit like they couldn't say oh go and bend that note and let's try and sound like Eric Clapton or let's try and sound yeah. it's like actually we, we you know we're probably very limited so all we can do is this sound and um yeah, that's as far as it's going to go. So it's quite interesting when when bands are like that, really, because obviously, yeah, it, it does give it a, a different quality. And also, I suppose with um, with Mick, I suppose it's kind of a possible that generation who grew up with people like Vivian Stanshaw as well, mm. who's uh, always quite who's quite well, influential in his kind of slight goofiness, but also kind of genius as well.
1: Yeah, I don't think. I mean, we we played a we played some of substantial stuff in the band but he he wasn't do you mean that he i mean he was no he wasn't an influence on the band but um do, do you mean that kind of attitude
0: yeah i suppose that yeah that that creating something that you're not looking with one eye thinking god if we have the hits we're going to get into you know like i mean you know in the 80s you know we're not it wasn't kind of looking at Duran Duran or uh, Dire Straits with those kind of lyrics that you had, yeah. you know. It it wasn't it wasn't you know those kind of big hey we're on top of the pops and we're all living the dream kind of thing, was it? You know, with chart bound sound. So it was oh. it was kind of I suppose it was quite brave to create something that you realise, you know, John Peel might pick up and then you might be able to play the kind of arts centre college circuit. But there were. Yeah, at the same time, you're not thinking we're shifting the units here, guys. This is it. The, the video is going to come. Then we're going to crack America, Far East and bingo. We've done it.
1: Well, I would have liked to have done that as well. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the ultimate kind of prize is being able to, you know, retain the, the artistic side of things and do what you want to do musically and then also achieve commercial success. We never managed that.
0: No, and how did you get on, sort of, with things like you know? Because the other thing that I've I've noticed with this, this show is that the, you know, getting tripped up with either management and the admin, and slightly you know, record labels, and um, I suppose yeah, just kind of knowing how you how to sort of run the business that is making music, and not sort of having it all sort of taken away, and you think oh, you know, like. I suppose talking to someone from um, Age of Chance, it's like they got the big cheque, but then they realised that they were in almost... You think, wow, that's so much money, but now we're in debt almost instantly because we've got the record, you know, the recording cost, we've got the manager, we've got everybody else has to take a section of this. So actually, from 100,000, 200,000, we somehow man- managed to sort of be in debt and we now owe Virgin Records lots of money that, you know, you know. You know <laughs> we'll, we'll never be able to sort of own our own songs for decades.
1: Uh, well, yes. I mean, you've answered your own question there. It's kind of um, yeah. That's exactly how it is. How it happens, you know.
0: Um, yeah. So, how oh, did how did you get on with you know because you were with Ron Johnson Records, weren't you?
1: Yeah, I had we had minimal contact with um, Dave at uh, uh, Ron Johnson. He used, he used to I used to get the odd letter, typed letter, off him, and then uh, the odd phone call, but there was not much you know it wasn't um the the first ep came out on his label and then uh, very soon after that everything changed so the what the um you know there wasn't an awful lot of contact with him to be honest
0: yes and Apart did you the, and did you yeah. and, and have you managed to sort of you know have the rights to your songs uh warner brothers uh, is it warner chapel i can't, I can't
1: they, they own all the stuff on um, Fizz Pancake and the rest, I think, is owned, owned by us.
0: Yes, that's quite... Being honest, I'm
1: not really... I don't really... You know, I, I don't really know <laughs> who owns what. I mean, when you when you look into the history of, of it, you see something that's... A record company's been absorbed by another one and then absorbed by another one and then the rights for this were sold to somebody else and it's very difficult to sort of... Chase it all up and also get permission and all that, um, uh, unless it's obviously sort of in the whole realm, like the Quirkout stuff was in the first EP.
0: yeah um,
1: The stuff on Fierce Pancake, I think, is bound up uh, over a period or something, still. Right. I don't know.
0: And obviously, you know, the other thing that I've noticed, is this, <laughs> you kind of get to see patterns. Most most of the record uh the the bands that I sort of have interviewed have, have got this kind of fantastic five-year arc, which is the sort of getting together, creating a sound thing, oh gee, this is amazing. Doing the John Peel, you know, John Peel getting played, the session with John Peel, the album, the tour, and then there was and then there's the tricky second album. Plus, if anybody's ever gone to America, that seems to have completely finished bands off. So, how did your sort of story pan out during that period?
1: Well, it was more or less like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you've described it. <laughs> it's, it wasn't probably about four years altogether from right from me and Chris getting together right way to the end to the last gig. So, um, yes, it, it was like that. Um, I mean, Stumper, a band of hotheads, and, you know, it was, it was a very. It wasn't a very relaxing band to be be in at all, it was very, you know, everyone was like competing and um, there was a lot of arguments about very simple things. And not just musical arguments, but all sorts of other things about how to do stuff, you know, what's the best for the band and all that. So you came under a lot of scrutiny being in the band.
0: Yeah, because cause I suppose the other thing is, because some bands, there's a bit of a, um, you know, everyone's slightly equal, and then there's other bands where there's a bit more of a a definite leader. How did, uh, yeah. how were the dynamics with Stump?
1: It was quite even, but everyone had a very, very strong personality. Um, so, um, I mean, that creates its own problems if it's run like a democracy and, and run by committee. Uh as much as somebody else coming in and telling somebody what they want done, you know. Um, so, it, yeah, it was quite even. I think mainly because there was always a feeling when you were in the band that if one person left then the band was over, it you couldn't just replace one person for another. It would be impossible. And okay. that, and I, in terms of personality as well, not just musical ability. If, Like, for instance, if Rob had left... He did leave after a, a spat with Mick once before a gig, and uh, we had a drummer in temporarily for a couple of gigs, and it never it didn't feel the same. and then Mick Rob uh, came back, was invited back in, uh, you know and, um, and I think that was the, you know that would have been the case for any, any of us in the band, if we had left, then the band would have just ended.
0: And did it, I mean, was it Was it also, because it's always tricky to know, I mean, because most bands at that time and age, I suppose it's an age thing, there's kind of um, people getting a bit slack around the world of drinking drugs. <laughs> was yeah. that ever a factor in the world of Stump?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, it was.
0: Yeah, there was a
1: lot of um, speed taken uh, at the end, which made the thing, I think it made communication difficult, you know. Okay. okay. Um, and then a lot of, we were always quite keen on drinking, the whole band. But I think that probably did accelerate at the end. Yes. Um, and, did yeah, you, so, and,
0: and was the writing on the wall when the band sort of uh, came yes. to an end?
1: Yeah, it was. It, there'd been a build-up and there'd been a sort of feeling of um, underachievement, you know, with the release of the album. Um, we were arguing also about... The music for the first time about whether we were doing the right thing and you I'd been in the in the van and it, there'd be um Rob and uh, Chris playing beatles records and, and talking endlessly about how the beatles made made their music up which you know which I like the beatles you know and um but i'm not that I'm not that interested in making music like that and there'd be me sort of playing Holger Hill records and this heat records and more sort of extreme stuff. And th- there'll be a there'll be there was some sort of uh discomfort about the sort of lack of commercial success we were having and and, you know, whether we had we had a future, that was the sort of underlying kind of thing behind it. And there was this sort of something niggling it. At- at, at at the band as a whole about you know our level of success and ability to sort of uh, go on and um, become popular and and have a, some sort of longevity as a band i think
0: yeah and did you on the last gig did you sort of know it was the last gig had it been planned oh it was, it was
1: horrendous absolutely horrendous um
0: uh
1: our set usually lasted an hour, just over an hour. And, and uh, I remember Rob being very drunk and playing very, very fast. Everyone was playing much faster and sort of angrier than usual. The whole thing lasted about half an hour. and There was fisticuffs, Mick and Rob. Uh, there was, you know, everyone glaring at each other. Um Arguments before we went on arguments afterwards, big flare ups you know it, it was it wasn 't good <laughs> it 's pretty ugly
0: i I do remember a story the the Eagles, who were probably quite quite different to uh, stump but i remember i think it was one of their last gigs they had you know, before they had a long break where they were literally sort of eyeing each other up to have a fight and as soon as the last number was done I think one of the guitarists just threw his guitar down and ran because he knew the rest of the band were going to beat him up because there was so much tension you know it wasn't just going to be a bit of another argument this was going to be a brutal assault on each other so so um, yes it sounds like you, you also realised that things had got to that level as well.
1: Yeah I, I remember um, you know that when um, Rob and Mick went off to do a promotional tour of the States that we were me and Chris were also invited right to go. And we said, no. And I said, Oh God, we've got to write some more, more material. So me and Chris stayed at home and, um, we didn't write anything. You know, it was like, it was different. I found, you know, I just found it difficult to, to, to uh, settle back into the way we'd written before and and all that. And if, you know, I knew that if I didn't come up with anything, and I was slightly more interested in electronic sampling and whatnot than playing bass, then there would be nothing written because the way we used to write stuff was I'd start off with a bass line then Chris would, would play play around with that. And um, if I didn't start off with anything, then the, the whole thing would grind, grind to a halt. So it kind of, yeah, the bottom went out of the... Um, the thought the kind of way we put songs together a little bit as well around that time. Partly my fault, I think, because my interests had sort of changed a bit.
0: Yeah. And um, did you after that gig, did you have a moment to um, to to kind of announce to each other as well as the the sort of fans that it was all over?
1: No. Um the the mani- our manager asked us very directly, we we're all sitting in a circle or something in the dressing room, and he acted asked us very directly if we want to split up and, and he might have added something like you look like you want to split up and i think we all sort of mumbled yes and that was it
0: that was it. and obviously you know as a fan you never really want bands to reform i mean they're nice you know it's nice when they do but i suppose the one thing is you sort of hope that um after that moment that they had which could you know obviously lasted you know half a decade or a decade that that people were sort of generally okay with each other. Did you manage to patch up after that?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, the the thing is, um, well, I'll try and sort of answer this without being sort of personal, but I think once a lot of the drugs and speeding was removed from the whole thing and it sort of excess alcohol you know that kind of thing then you then you can you you suddenly realize oh, what what you liked about somebody and and all that and I mean, we were all we, we were always we were sort of fairly apart the three of us Rob Mick and, uh Rob um, Chris and myself were always quite communicative you know we were always we were the ones that sort of tended to chat about stuff and Mick would be the person in the corner with a newspaper pulled around him. Yeah, he wouldn't. He wasn't very chatty guy. Uh, and when he left after the band split up, and he left to go back to Cork, I didn't see him for years, maybe a decade. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't feel very. Um, uh, I didn't feel like he was. I didn't feel very close to Mick at all. He was, you know, he was always one, sl- one step slightly removed and a bit cooler. Than, than the rest of us but I you know I've, I always felt very, quite close to Rob and, and Chris yeah
0: yeah and um, sort of you know with that experience and also you, you sort of continue to play music what would you say to your 18 year old self who was sort of starting out in that the rock and roll game well I wouldn't I wouldn't have oh, that's a really difficult question
1: I've been I've thought about that quite a few times uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, knowing the sort of person I was, um, I wouldn't have any advice for myself up 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 until the end of Stump, but I would have advised myself after Stump to just get ready for Britpop and to have formed another band, or pro- you know, get back into playing bass again and, and formed another band. Because, <laughs> because that then... You know, after the dance thing happened and the guitar bands were like passe, that people got fed up with that and they wanted guitar bands back. And I think um I, if I could advise myself, I would have said, why didn't you form a banjo and Britpop, you know, and stay in business yes. <laughs> as a musician.
0: I know it's easy. To... So look, after after stump, then what yeah. happened? You know, you know, to to a person who's been in a band and had that. I mean, because it sounds, you know, and it's the same with virtually everybody I speak to, that you become almost It's twenty four seven. You know, that period in a band. You know, you don't often don't realise it, but you realise that that's all you think about, and that's all you're sort of planning the album, the you know, the release, the tour. You know, just having to sort out stuff. So. When that finished, you know what mm. what happens next.
1: Well, I, I I did a solo album on Ghetto Records, and I, initially I had a little bit of money to do that with, so a small advance. That got me through about a year, but after that, the money ran out, and um, I went back to work. I went doing the same work as, as I did. Just before stump, which was care, you know, care work, um, supporting people with learning disabilities, and then um, I got into free improvisation, and um, you know that kind of very much more obscure kind of music <laughs> than pop or rock, uh, and I did a lot of that in London, sort of playing improvised gigs, free improvised gigs.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and then um, towards the 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 well, in two thousand, I did the Whispering Fools album, and and then an, another album that came. Both albums came out in Drag City. So
0: yeah. And now you've got a new album that's coming out.
1: Uh, no, I, I've um, I, I run a band called Prescott now. You know about them?
0: No, because I sort of, I sort of slightly t- found you through some release that was coming out. Is that the same as Prescott? God, because you've done a huge amount of solo albums, didn't you? I mean, that was, yeah. you know, they I did. did one,
1: I did a solo, a, a solo, well, the last one I did was 2015. And um, that was called Kevlington. And then... um Prescott have been going since 2012 or around then. So I've, and Prescott have done two albums and they're, they're, and they're a proper band. though We're a great band, you know, so we play instrumental music, but it's got a lot of the characteristics of Stump in it and something else as well, you know, so, and that's with, uh, Roderick Marsden who plays keyboards with Squitty Polity, um, Frank Bing, who plays with not, uh, This Is Not This He, and a few other bands, Grumbling Fur. You're right. And, um, uh, Keith Moline, who plays with Perubu. So it's a kind of, it's almost like a super group.
0: <laughs> it is a super group of all the people who were sort of uh, creating that music from the, from the list. It was that Lars Kevlinton, and it was on Bandcamp, and I, I don't know why, but something sort of suddenly I, appeared in my life and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I thought, oh, there's a member of Stump. This is even more exciting, you know, because yeah. often trying to track people down is so tricky. And, um, yes, I've done, done quite well so far, but um, obviously it's like, ah, this is this is even better. You know, I think I've got a lead, yeah. you know. But, you know, sort of realising, you know, because you've got this, you know, you have got an amazing Back catalogue, and funny enough, your solo career has lasted a lot longer than Stump. So you must be quite chuffed to see, you know, the work is still out there and that there are still people interested.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I've never lost interest in music. I'm not, I, you know, it, it always saddened me a little bit that the the other guys um, didn't do much musically. You Knowing Chris was in a band called Tuna for a little bit, but it was, you know, they made one album, and then Rob. Uh Rob sings and plays guitar and does a lot of folk stuff, but he, he I don't think he's recorded anything. And then Mick didn't do anything. Nothing. Just went down the pub and stayed there.
0: So obviously when you heard that he'd um passed away, it wasn't a huge surprise.
1: Well, I thought he was he was in awful shape when we did the reunion gig. Then the the week we spent in Clonakilty rehearsing, I, I thought he was he was in awful shape. He was, uh, he was, you know, he's like half the the man he that I remembered. He he was very slow on the uptake. He was um, wasn't laughing and smiling much. He was s- slow with everything. Um, he didn't prepare for the the, the, get, the songs, he didn't, he, forgot, he didn't even bring the lyrics, and the, and then he assumed he'd remember everything, he didn't remember hardly anything. His singing, his singing wasn't that great, he was struggling with the high notes. I mean, we'd offered to sort of change the key of some of the stuff and prep that, but he didn't seem to think he needed that. But then when we came to rehearsing it, Seemed apparent that he probably could have benefited from that. Um, uh, you know, he was always sort of—he wasn't really there. He sort of kept, you know, going out the door for a cigarette. He was, you know, he's a very, very addictive kind of addicted to fags and uh, uh, boozing. You know yeah I don't think he looked good. I never saw him eat the whole time i was we were there
0: yeah
1: uh he was really thin pencil thin he'd lost all his teeth, nearly all of his teeth. they were just you know, uh, and he, his skin looked gray, he looked really unhealthy.
0: God, that's such a depressing thought, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, guess that this is what this is what I often think, you know, I mean, sometimes reunions work and if they're done in the right spirit where it's just a sort of bit of a get together. But often, you know, you want to remember it as it was and still listen to the music occasionally yeah. and just think, oh, yeah, that was that was kind of magic. And yeah, like I said, as a fan, you, you quite hope that some of the members still sort of can occasionally sort of either... Yeah, I don't know. Send a bit odd birthday greeting and just say hi. You know, good times. But that yeah. was three decades ago. But I think that's all you can sort of hope, unless a band is like, other than the Rolling Stones or you two, who just kind of continue to keep on trucking all the way until obviously they're going to go till they die. I guess.
1: Yeah, he uh, he never communicated with me in the time or 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 any of the other members of the band. He never, you know, reached out and sent messages or. Even phone calls in that time and um and he 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 was very difficult to get a hold of he didn't have have a phone, he wouldn't charge it up or he wouldn't there was always some problem with it he didn't have any credit you know uh and people would have to go and call around and knock on his door to communicate with him, you know, and then he'd complain, you know, that when the stuff came out, the compilation album came out, um, the anthology, he, he said he was angry because he hadn't been asked about it. And we'd sent loads of messages and it was impossible to contact. Uh, and yet he still was protested about it um, afterwards to me slamming the cd down in front on the table saying why wasn't he asked about it and he was asked dozens of times and people would try and communicate with him loads of times and you know he just wasn't interested in communicating with the outside world at all he didn't have a computer so you, you couldn't get hold of him that way you couldn't get hold of him via phone the only way you could do, do it was to send a letter or something like that <laughs>
0: God, that's, um yes, the grim, the, the dark side of rock and roll, really, isn't it? Yeah. Never mind, <laughs> yes. But look, and that is the interview I did with Kev Hopper from Stump. There you go. A big thank you. And if you, um, i would give you my de- uh, contact details. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show and, um, yes, keep it positive and, Creative otherwise, don't bother. And um, also I've been archiving all these shows and interviews. So you can find those on Podbean that I loved, Spotify, even iTunes and Mixcloud when I get round to it. Anyway, thank you for listening, if you still are. This has been David Eastall. Have a great week.